Exodus 32, verses 1 through 9, these are God's words. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And Yahweh said to Moses, Go, get down. For your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people. And indeed, it is a stiff-necked people. So far, the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. The Lord Jesus gives us the only way of coming to him. God gives us the only way of coming to him and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. We cannot come up with the way of coming to God any more than we can be God, any more than we can atone for sin, any more than we can produce righteousness, any more than we can produce by our own power life in ourselves. The only way to come to God is in the way that he has provided and the way that he has said. This is why when Jesus was at the well with the woman and she really did not want to talk about how many husbands she had had or whether the one that she had now was even her husband, she changed the topic to a theological dispute between the Samaritans, which she was, and the Jew, which she had perceived the Lord Jesus to be, and asked whether they should worship at the mountain or at the temple. Because after all, God was the one who had gathered Israel up on a mountain and had given them a tabernacle. Uh, And she thought that 
the temple was uh, something unique to the house of David from which the northern tribes had been broken apart and uh, that she had the true and ancient religion on her side, the traditions of her fathers and uh, even her father Jacob who had dug the well uh, at which which they were speaking. Uh, And yet Jesus made clear that it's not the ancientness of tradition or the human people who are associated uh, with the worship, but that the worship would be according to the word of God. He said the Jews are right. Salvation is from the Jews. Salvation coming, of course, by the word that was given. And she, understanding that it's a uh, verbal revelation question, said, oh, well, when the Christ comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus told her, uh, of course, prior to that, that the question of the mountain or the temple didn't matter anymore because the hour was coming and was now coming when those who worship God had to worship him in spirit and in truth and in part because the worship leader that God had appointed, uh, who was standing in front of her at the time or sitting with her at the time, was about to die, rise again from the dead and ascend into heaven. And he was not going to be leading the worship of God's people, either on a mountain or from a physical temple on earth. He was going to be leading it from glory, by his spirit, by his word. And they could only worship God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because that's the only way we have access to Jesus. Jesus who said to the apostle, uh, the apostles, Uh, the end of the Gospel of John, uh, after uh, Thomas had gotten to see him and believed, uh, and he said, having seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe. That would be every one of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus of whom Peter said, him we not having seen. Isn't it interesting that Peter Peter had seen him? Uh, Peter had seen him perhaps more than anyone else on earth, save perhaps his brother John at the time. Him whom not having seen, you love. Um, We love him whom we have not seen. We believe in him whom we have not seen. This is the essence of the Christian life, and this is the essence of Christian worship. This is the reason that the faith chapter from which we have quoted, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 which tells us that faith is evidence and certainty of things invisible and uh, things not yet. This is why it appears in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an entire book about how when Jesus had atoned for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and from there he leads our worship. He has gone with his blood into that of which the Holy of Holies was a copy. And now he leads the preaching and he leads the singing and he leads the supping at his table. He leads the praying. He leads all of the worship of his gathered people on earth, which is why you must never forsake the assembling of yourselves together on earth because there's no other place that you have the same access to the worship in heaven than in the sacred assembly that our great high priest leads from glory. But we have a problem. It requires faith. You can't see Jesus' face. You can't hear Jesus' 
voice. I don't mean the inner voice by which his spirit affirms to you, like we heard this morning in the preaching, how for those who believe, they remember those times and uh, and the Lord blessing to us, may it increase and be weekly for us where you're listening to the word of God preached and you suddenly become aware that God himself, Christ himself is addressing you as you listen to this preaching. That the Lord Jesus by his spirit using the words which he recorded on the page, which are his very own words, is addressing your soul and speaking to you You're under obligation to hear and believe whatever he teaches you and obey whatever he commands. But we can't hear that voice vibrating our eardrums. We do not see his face. He is not perceptible to our senses. Well, that was the problem in Exodus chapter 32. That's what led to this dreadful incident with the golden calf. Uh, And as the Holy Spirit carries Moses along to write this, he gives us what's called an inclusio. He he gives us the same sort of language at the beginning and at the end. The people see that Moses is delayed in verse 1. And Yahweh says to Moses, I have seen this people. Yahweh says, I have seen this people. In verse 9, and that corresponds to in verse 1 with the people saying, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So God they cannot see, but Moses they used to be able to see, but now Moses they cannot see either. And so they're saying to Aaron, We believe that God has brought us out of the land of Egypt. We believe that Yahweh has delivered us out of the house of slavery, uh, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. But we need something that we can see. Come, make for us something visible that will go before us. They are not content to know God by faith. To know God in the way that God has given them to know him. They want to walk by sight. But dear Christian, the reality of our God, the reality of our Lord Jesus Christ, the reality of his salvation, the reality of the access that we have to him in worship and the fellowship that we have with God and with Christ The fellowship that we have with God in Christ in worship is one that can only be perceived by faith. It cannot be perceived by sight. And so when we come to Exodus 32 verses 1 through 9, we come to something that's very relevant for us. Because as we know, we've just spent many weeks, haven't we, considering God's plan for them to give them something tangible. He was mercifully giving them a tabernacle and a bronze altar with sacrifices that would be be, uh, offered on that altar to point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would know about the the lampstand and the table with the showbread and the ark 
and the Holy of Holies and the atonement cover of the ark and the cherubim that were built into the cover of the ark. And God had given them all of those things that have taught us still all of those wonderful things about the finished work of Christ. Christ is our tabernacle and Christ is our priest and Christ is our sacrifice. Christ is the one in whom the smile of God shines upon us. Christ is the one in whom we have fellowship with God like the table fellowship that men can have with bread. Christ is the one who is the aroma that pleases God and who anoints us and sets us apart as holy and sanctifies us. And he had given them all of those pictures that pointed forward to Christ. For us, he's removed many of those things, hasn't he? He's just given us Christ. He's given us Christ by his word and his sacrament. But the sacraments are very unimpressive. A little bit of water poured out. Or if you don't see that we baptize with water and Christ baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You get a little bit more water that you dip into. It's really not that much more. It just makes it a little more difficult. And the meal, a little bit of bread, a little bit of wine. You know, some, sometimes we you know, try to divide the, the numbers exactly so that everyone can have as big a bit of bread as possible. But that might mean you get a bite and a half instead of a half a bite. A little bit of wine. It's really not much, is it? And even when we come, what, do we, what, do we, what are we reminded of as we come to the table every week? You can't feed upon Christ and have fellowship with Christ and be confirmed in Christ by what you do with your mouth. Faith must receive him. You're to do this in remembrance of him. Not in quantity of bread or in quantity of wine. Quality of bread or wine. And so there's this danger that having to walk by faith presents. And that danger is that if we add it all to what God has said, if we add it all to the way that God has given us to worship Him, we will have something that has the appearance of wisdom but lacks its power, the appearance of godliness, but lacks the power of God. And indeed, we will provoke God's wrath even by the worship that we offer. And that self-directed worship becomes not just a self-indulgent worship, but worship that forms a self-indulgent life. And that when we add anything, we lose everything. When we add anything, we lose everything. So in the first place, having an appearance of wisdom if we worship by sight instead of by faith, if we add to what God has given us, we may do things that have an appearance of wisdom or even have a form of godliness. It's not so much a form of godliness. It's just an appearance of wisdom, but it lacks its power. And it provokes God's wrath. The people see that Moses delays in coming down. They say, as for this Moses, we do not know what has become of him. They make this request to Aaron. Uh, they say, you know what, Aaron, I, I don't like this worship. 
Well, I'd like worship that um, that does more for me. That what we're doing now, it just it doesn't do anything for me. Because this Muslim, Mo, this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron replies to them. He doesn't reply to them. Yes, but Moses is the mediator of the covenant, and we've already heard the words of God. And the reason he went was uh, was to hear God's words and and bring them back to us. And so we can't do anything without the word of God. So we'll just wait until he returns. Now Moses, sorry, Aaron responds with what seems like wisdom. Aaron says to them, break off the golden earrings. He's going to lead the entire community in sacrificial giving. He doesn't say, okay, I will make something for you. He says, no, this should be something we all do together. He leads the community of the redeemed to give sacrificially. And he highlights the role of the husband and the father. Verse 2 still. Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters. And so in this, this community project of sprucing up the worship of God. Not only is everyone going to give sacrificially, but the dads are going to lead their families. Husbands are going to lead their wives. And they're not just going to give that which is valuable because it's gold, but that which has meaning. Even as they heard in the book of the covenant, you remember back in chapter 21 and verse 6, uh, in the, uh, those parts of the case law that were given in the book of the covenant and uh, the ear-piercing ceremony, if a slave wanted to be in the house forever, he was going to use that which was symbolic of wanting to be in God's house forever and to belong to him and have him as master who brought me out of Egypt rather than the Egyptians as masters, from whom he delivered me. Indeed, not only only does uh, Aaron make this collection uh, in verses 2 and 3, but then he uses his skill. And just as we heard last week, it's spirit-given skill. After all, does Aaron not have this ability in, in smelting gold and uh, in fashioning it and then, uh, and then tooling it finely at the end? Does he have this skill for no purpose? Surely the Holy Spirit has given us all the wisdom that we have. And Aaron has these skills and he is the brother of Moses after all. He's going to be anointed the high priest. Not too many days from now. And then they are going to celebrate redemption. They're going to celebrate the redemption of God. They say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Not only do they celebrate redemption, they do it as a worshiping of Yahweh. They institute A feast for the worship of Yahweh. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. It appears appears wise, doesn't it? You see, 
errors in worship that provoke the wrath of God, man-made additions to worship, don't start out with uh, androgynous people who are picking their own pronouns doing interpretive dance. Some of you are laughing. I'm talking about something that happened in the worship of a PCA church in New York several years ago now. Or the interpretive painting that one of my dear wife's great friends from college, a sister college to Asbury, same theology as Asbury. Um, She was a beautiful blonde girl. And she was so excited to let us know a couple years after we had graduated how uh, her church had decided to put her up front, surprise, surprise, so that she could paint her impressions of the sermon. Uh, and then she would uh, sell off the painting. So, you know, give something for all the guys to do, watch, uh, watch her do the painting and then raise funds for the church. Worship errors usually don't start out that way. They usually start out with something that has more of the appearance of wisdom. And those who add to what God has given us to worship, they say things like, but we should really celebrate the redemptive works of God. This is a feast to Jesus. Put Christ back into it. They say of things that Christ was never in, never invented didn't give his people to do. It has the appearance of wisdom. And when we get to the end of the next point, because the two go together, we will see that not only does it lack its power so that it leads us to be more enslaved to sin rather than more freed from sin, which is supposed to be the result of the worship of God, Not only does it lack power against sin, it positively provokes God's wrath. How great is the fury of God that will uh, that we will consider next week, Lord sparing us, Lord willing. And we'll see God telling Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. In other words, oh, that's the third point. We'll get there in a moment. So, The golden calf has the appearance of wisdom. And that's one of the reasons why it has such staying power. In 1 Kings 12, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is coming up with the calf worship at Bethel and Dan, uh, instead of the temple of Solomon, which is going to come to be associated with the, the southern kingdom and with the family of David, just like we were thinking about a moment ago in John 4 between Jesus and, and the Samaritan, when Jeroboam's coming up with it, He refers to the calf as your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It is a way of worshiping Yahweh. It is not meant to be a substitute. But as we're going to hear, when you add anything, you lose everything. And by the time Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, does that, there's hundreds of years of tradition among the redeemed people of God celebrating his redemption in that way. And surely many of the Levites, who, by the way, when Jeroboam came up with his whole new church calendar and he came up with uh, new groups of 
priests, the Levites, ended up doing what? Moving south. They returned to Judah, and you can imagine uh, a Levite pleading with people to worship God in, in the way that the God who actually saved us has, has given us uh, to come near to him, and, and them saying, oh, come on. This liturgy has ancient tradition for hundreds of years. It was started even by the man who was high priest, the first high priest, the Pope of Israel, started these traditions. And we're, we're celebrating the salvation. Don't you want to celebrate the salvation of God? How can you be upset with us for doing that? It has the appearance of wisdom. You know what else has the appearance of wisdom? Your and my measuring worship by what we can perceive. That was a really good worship service today. How, how do you know? It made me feel good. <clears throat> or it made me feel bad. I've run into those churches too. Once had to preach a whole second set of candidating sermons uh, because I hadn't made the congregation feel badly enough. And so this, the session asked for uh, Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you, uh, and Philippians 2, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for the next time. But worshiping with the songs we like or the kind of preaching we like and, uh, and uh, deciding the value of worship by uh, whether I f feel like going down there, well, most of you going over there for me, going down there, uh, uh, from the manse and the hill. No, we must measure the values of things by what God says, not what we can perceive. In the second place, we find that the self-directed worship leads to self-indulgence. Verse 6 is the verse that uh, the Apostle uh, uh, Paul, by the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 10, actually picks to represent this entire incident. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and, offered, and brought peace offerings. And then he says, And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now I'm sure there were some very sincere believers for whom the highlight of the day was the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. That they got to see a tangible representation of atonement and deliverance and forgiveness. And you know, when, when everybody else you know, hit the buffet table and, and got up and started having the, the games and stuff, they're like, no, this was supposed to be a feast to Yahweh. Let us dwell on how God has really saved us. But this is how it always devolves with man-made religion. It devolves that way with God's religion where we can't wait to get the religious, the, the religious exercises out of the way so that we can do the stuff that we like instead. You get people who refer to just the eating time and the chit-chat as if that's fellowship. Forgetting that worshiping together through Christ in heaven is the fellowship, capital F, of the Lord's day. And that all of the other Fellowship is also to be worshipful because it's the Lord's day. And so they get the religious exercise out of the way early. They get up early the next day, verse 6, offer their burnt offerings, offer their peace offerings. And then this is, this is what Paul quotes. And he's stringing together ways that 
the, uh, the wilderness generation uh, which fell and was destroyed was to be an example for them. He says, First uh, Corinthians 10, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then he proceeds immediately to, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. So he, he, he goes on uh, to the incident, incident with the Moabite women. The Midian, no, the Balak king of Moab. Moabite women uh, in verse 8. So this is it from Exodus 32. When he talks about being idolaters, he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, why is it surprising if their observance of Christ is self-indulgent that their whole life would then become self-indulgent? That once having given the lip service and, and the, formal, uh, the, the formal due, the outward form of honor to the Lord Jesus, uh, the day wouldn't for them really be about the food, especially if you're Middle Eastern, uh, or the entertainments, especially if you belong to the American cult of football, which uses primarily the hands. Or it's really about the presence, isn't it, kids? Because even those of you who learn to say it's about Jesus and Maybe the Lord's delivered you from this. You don't spend the months, you know, you don't start you know, three days after the day saying, I cannot wait until we get to worship God again. If you did, well, praise God, you only have four days left. But you're already you know, saying, next year for this day, can I have this? Or maybe you've learned not to verbalize it to mom and dad you know, three days after but you're thinking to yourself the whole year long, oh, this is what I hope I get. Uh, and then you, you grow another 16 minutes and you, oh, now this is what I hope I get. Uh, and whatever 16 minutes you happen to be in the time that mom and dad are figuring it, you end up getting that. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's because only the power of God can restrain sin. And the only way we can have God is in the ways that God has given us to have him. This was the point in Colossians 2, when God, who had given them the tabernacle and the ceremonial system that they had had as shadows that pointed forward to Christ, took them away. Why? Because he had now given them Christ. Christ himself had come. And the worship of God and the knowledge of God in Christ actually came through one who was in heaven, not one who was on earth anymore. And so he had replaced a much more tangible expression of a religion that was still supposed to be by faith with one that was invisible. And so he says, Colossians 2, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Okay, so the things that they were adding to had even as their substance then Christ. 
And now Christ, the substance, has come and he takes away the shadow. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Whenever we add anything to the worship that God has commanded, we are vainly puffed up in our fleshly minds, thinking that we have access to heaven itself in some other way than what God has prescribed. Not holding fast to the head, that is Jesus, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. False humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Sometimes there's self-imposed religion with false humility and neglect of the body. Sometimes there's self-imposed religion by adding something more sensible, more, more, more perceptible, more tangible to the worship by faith of the invisible God. The worship that is through our Savior who is now invisible to us. And the apostle says, that has no power against the indulgence of your flesh. So don't be surprised if in a church culture in which we worship the way we want, the worship the way that pleases us, we add all sorts of things that feel and look more meaningful. God takes away incense, we add incense. God takes away candles, we add candles. God takes away decorations, we decorate the room. God takes away priests, we add priests. God takes away sacrifices, we have a mass. God takes away special buildings, we say, oh, our building is special. Don't be surprised if we add to the worship of God that which is from us and not from him, and then we find ourselves unable to control our fleshly appetites, unable to control our tongue. Unable to control the lust of the eyes. Unable to control the desires, the disproportionate desires, even after good things. He says in Colossians 2, you have Christ who is the substance of the divine religion. And instead you are following self-imposed additions, which have no power against the flesh. I mean, if I can come and reshape the worship of God to please me, is there anything in my life that I can't decide to reshape for, in which to live for my pleasure? No, when you add to the worship that God has given you, you lose everything. It's shocking, isn't it? The language that he uses in verse 7. When you add anything, you lose everything. 
Yahweh said to Moses, go get down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. This is the God who says, my people whom I have brought up out of the land of Egypt. But they want to have him visibly. They lost Moses, so they thought or couldn't see him for a while. And so they wanted to come up with a different way of having God. Well, Moses was not really the way that they had God. He was appointed by God, but God had given them himself. And when you and I want something that is easier for us to perceive, what we're saying is God as he has given himself is not good enough for me. I want God as I would have him give himself to me. And so even the way he talks basically says they want a a God they can see. They want to be the people of a God they can see. Fine. They're your people now. They're not mine anymore. They want to be saved, delivered out of Egypt by a God they can see. Fine. They can be saved out of Egypt by that calf. Not saved by me anymore. We cannot add to the gospel. We cannot add to Christ. All of us know this. You know it, of course, if you're a believer, because that was part of your coming to faith. Is when you said, only Christ and nothing else. Christ, all of my righteousness. Christ, all of my atonement. Christ, all of my hope. All of my power. All of my life. And many of us have spent years, decades, walking with Christ, learning this lesson in our sanctification, haven't we? That even in the things that he's given us to do, we're unable to do those things. It must be the grace of Christ applied to us by the power of the Spirit that actually grows us in godliness. And all the other self-help junk is worthless to try because it hadn't been given by the Christ whose power it actually takes to sanctify someone. You add anything, you lose everything. Because now you're walking in your own way. Why does he say, verse 7, they're your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt? Well, because they're not walking in God's ways. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They're still at the bottom of the mountain. They're still waiting to receive orders. They just added a feast while they wait. But God refers to adding that feast as turning aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, that you brought out of the land of Egypt. You see, they may use the name Yahweh, but they don't have Yahweh himself whose name they used we're going to do more but we've run long God has actually saved us and he has actually come in the person of the son as a man who having obeyed having bled having bought us has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
And it is he whom we have when we worship God in the simple way that he has given. And if we add anything, we threaten ourselves, we put ourselves in danger of losing everything. Amen, let's pray. Lord, how we thank you that you, the living God, have given yourself to men, that the way all of this ends is with the glorious pronouncement, the dwelling place of God is with men. And that there is no need for, the, for a temple because you will be in that place. We thank you that your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, sits with the scar evidences of our redemption on the throne of glory. And we pray, O oh God, that you would give us the help of your Spirit to stir up our faith because we are weak and we are foolish and being unable to perceive him like we wish we could, we are in constant danger of adding to the purity and the simplicity of what you have given us when that can't help our faith at all anyway. And so help us, we pray. We believe. Help our unbelief, we ask through Jesus. Amen.